What's the secret to a happy life? For the answer, join us in Madrid from Thursday the 27th to Saturday the 29th of June for Monocle's fifth annual Quality of Life Conference. Head to conference.monocle.com for all the details and to buy your ticket. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 16th of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. Coming up on today's program, U.S. President Donald Trump has declared a national emergency. This over the threat of foreign adversaries to the country's computer networks. And we have to assume he's targeting Huawei. China is warning Washington not to further upset relations. So my guest Linda Yu and Alessio Patalano will be discussing how much this latest measure has angered Beijing ahead of more key trade talks. Plus, American troops will be shipped out of Okinawa, much to the joy of locals who have for years been fed up with the American military presence. And Boris Johnson as British Prime Minister, perhaps not a foregone conclusion, but at least there is today certainty over his ambition. All that plus, should Belgium's former king be made to take a paternity test? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Daniel Bage. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Linda Yu, economist and author of The Great Economist, and Alessio Patalano, a lecturer in war studies at King's College London. Welcome both back to studio. We begin today's program in the United States, where President Donald Trump has declared a national emergency to protect the country's computer networks from so-called foreign adversaries. No company has been named, but is believed he is targeting the Chinese tech giant Huawei. An executive order has been signed barring um, U.S. firms from using telecom equipment made by companies deemed to pose a national security threat. So, uh, Linda, perhaps we'll start with you here. Is this pretty black and white that the U.S. president is specifically targeting Huawei here? Huawei and 70 other Chinese entities were were named by the Commerce Department, but in this executive order, it, is Trump clearly uh, hitting out at, at the tech giant? Well, I think um, probably if you look over what's been happening over the past few months, I think Huawei has been uh, singled out, um, whether officially or unofficially, is certainly the company, uh, probably because of how big it is as well. So if you look at the the others on the list, on the um, they're not the biggest telecoms equipment company in the world. So it's mm-hmm. always going to attract, I think, disproportionate attention, um, especially if you look at the tech race between the US and China. It's going to embody it to a large extent. I remember, mm-hmm. Huawei has been plagued really um, for a very long time um, as being um, one of the companies that, um, well, one of the one of the um, probably amongst all the global companies coming out of China, the company that has been targeted um, much more than others um, because of the founder Enjin Fei served in the People's Liberation Army. There's always been because of its sector suspicions that it spies on the Chinese government for the Chinese on the Chinese government <laughs> for the Chinese government. Um, so I think you know we shouldn't be surprised that Huawei mm. is um, getting the uh, the spotlight on this issue. Uh, In a separate move, as mentioned, the Commerce Department said it was adding Huawei and 70 affiliates to a so-called entity list, which bans the Chinese company from acquiring components and technologies from U.S. firms without prior U.S. government approval. Uh, What do we read into that, Alessio? I think there is no doubt that the U.S. government um, has been quite clear about the type of... uh, 
challenge that um, Chinese companies present to the United States. And in many respects, the FBI indictments is very precise. You know, it talks about interference of, from the government into companies' affairs, um, practices that would be uh, uh, not particularly fair, um, and above all, lead to uh, problematic management and access to information that is sensitive to national security. So I think there is no doubt that 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 uh, there is substance, if you want, to the nature of the threat. Here, the question is whether and to what extent one should take some sort of a blank check and apply it indistinctively, say like, well, we're not going to use you, uh, period. Um, or, as in this country, GCHQ um, has suggested, um, be very careful, mindful of the fact that these companies have um, a participation from the government, mm-hmm. and the government may very well, for national security reasons, require them to uh, do stuff for them, uh, which could be, Uh, a problem for the hosting country having the technology embedded into their infrastructure. The question is, can you manage that risk? That's a real question. And in a way, this executive order is is, is, is kind of like putting that question, which is the fundamental question, aside and making a political statement about the fact that, no, as a general thing, we're not happy. Therefore, uh, I suppose that the more important point here, is this really about uh, Huawei and the problem of telecommunications in particular as it relates to 5G, which we've been discussing for a while, or is it more about the trade war with China and sending a signal to Beijing to come back to the negotiating table and making some sort of concessions that have been sort of on the table for a while? Mm. Well, we mentioned off the top there that uh, Beijing uh, warns the US to avoid further damaging relations between the countries. Um, How damaging is this already because we do have more talks coming up. Yeah, we do. And I think um, what we're seeing now is um, really an escalation, I would say, um, rather than um, what's the opposite of uh, escalation. Um, anyways, uh, reducing the tensions. And right. The retaliatory tariffs that China was going to raise on U.S. Um, imports were not due to are not due to come into effect until June the 1st. So the idea was always when Presidents Xi and Trump could sit in the room on the sidelines of the G20 in Osaka next week, um, the week after, in fact, the 20, 29th of May, that they might be able to come out with some type of breakthrough because that's exactly what happened at the G20 um, last December in Buenos Aires when the two presidents sat down and they called a, quote, truce for 90 days Mm. and tariffs didn't go up at the start of the year. So I think that um, especially... um markets were um, anticipating that maybe that meeting um, would actually make the kind of progress that we didn't see in Washington um, was it last week or so. Um, but I think what you see now is what has always, I think, been fairly apparent is that the trade talks are not really about the um, the trade balance. They're much more about two things, level playing field with China. And the second thing is um, much more around technological um, superiority or competitiveness, which does have to do with the level playing field. But probably even even in a broader sense, it's about um, China um, emerging as an economic superpower when it's not a democracy and it has state-controlled enterprises and it has an economic model, um, which is different than mm. the United States. So even if we get a trade 
agreement, I'm using quotes, I know that your listeners can't see this, <laughs> you know, it won't be the end, I don't think, hmm. of the tensions between the two countries. Right. Um, since Trump signed off on uh, tariffs, the surplus, trade surplus, has actually increased and the global economy seemed to be recovering a little bit until this latest round of tariffs. A bit of scare there, but... What is Trump's end game with China then here, Alessio? Well, I think the uh, key end game is to convince the um, well um, liberalized market um, in China and above all abundant practice that are not um, are not meeting the standards that China set itself up to when it signed and promised uh, made certain promises uh, when it joined the WTO. Um, so I hear the, the question. Uh, I think Lind is absolutely right. The question of competitiveness is a central factor in this end game, but it's not so much the fact that the rise of China challenges American competitiveness because frankly American competitiveness is challenged by many other countries the world over um, in some areas the UK actually is very much at the cutting edge of technology but you don't see something like that um, and the same could be said at the opposite end of the spectrum that is actually the United States is playing hardball not just with China but with many of its closest allies most notably Japan uh, whereby they are uh, conducting negotiations over um, uh, elements that have been long-standing issues in, in the bilateral relationship. So it's not just about the competitiveness. It's not the challenge in itself, but how the challenge is coming about. Simply put, from an American perspective, China does not play fairly. Mm. And that actually is a fair point, oddly enough. Um, especially um, if you put uh, that in the context of the fact that since 2001, when China uh, joined the WTO, there is still an outstanding sort of uh, uh, expectation, right, on behalf of the rest of the international community, to China to liberalize its markets, to reduce the uh, state intervention into large companies. And in a way, some of the core reforms uh, that CGP put in place in the last year and a half went exactly the opposite direction. Um, uh, almost putting a break on what had been uh, sort of uh, uh, previous uh, decisions mm -hmm. and, and actions taken by um, Ho Jintao. So it seems to me that, that the key element in this is not so much the question of competition, but the end game is that how the Chinese behave internationally, changing and shaping their behavior in a way that it becomes more socialized, if you want, mm -hmm. with the established norm. Uh, Linda, we talked about uh, both restrictions on uh, technologies coming into the U.S., but also uh, technologies that are used in China. I wonder what the Chinese are more concerned about there, because part of that in the export is, uh, I assume, about China wanting to be involved in 5G networks. But on the other side, Americans have always been upset about inter intellectual property and technologies that have been used in uh, innovation in China. I wonder, with this talk of don't, just, don't anger us more, which they're more concerned about. I think it's going to be um, challenging for um, Chinese firms not to have access to um, U.S. technology um, because we saw that with ZTE, which is actually probably the second biggest um, player in this market. When they were cut off from um, the United States, um, they nearly went under. And so China has a few leading companies, um, very... Um, you know, they're very good in the domestic market, um, but I think for them to, to continue to grow, they need to be at the cutting edge. And the United States, Silicon Valley, is at the cutting edge of a lot of these technologies. So I remember China is a middle-income country. The U.S. is a rich country. So in that respect, um, I think China has um, catching up to do in some areas, and I think that would be um, quite challenging for them to be um, to, to be cut off from that. I think in terms of the United States and accessing, I guess, you know, Chinese tech or Chinese, um, or, well, let's just take 5G. So as I understand it, the issue with 5G is 
um, the standards of 5G is very important determining which supplier can meet those standards. So whoever sets the standards. So Huawei's had a big part to play in setting the standards. The Chinese have been very active um, in the 5G um, space, not, for instance, much more than in 4G or 3G. I don't, what, did we ever have a 2G? Um, so I think in this space, mm -hmm. the standards are, um, Huawei is a leading player actually in this space, even among Chinese telcos. So um, the United States, it's possible for them to push back against this 5G standard, but it will be, it will take some time before you get the United States um, to get have American companies because this process is already somewhat further along. Mm. So I think that to me is a battle of standards. Will they be set by Chinese firms or American firms? And if you think about how much China is investing around the world in telecommunications, uh, you know, infrastructure. Are those Chinese standards along the Belt and Road? Um, and the United States, um, they have their own standard. What does it mean for all the rest of us? So to me, that's another element of the competition. And it's actually quite, in many ways, strategic in terms of how companies and countries want to position themselves um, in this race. And I think 5G is only the latest example. I think there'll be many more of these. Fascinating. Um, and one to watch, one we will be watching uh, going forward, I imagine. Let us uh, move on now to Japan. And today's Monocle Minute reports that 5,000 U.S. Marines will be relocated from the Japanese island of Okinawa to the U.S. island of Guam, this by 2024. For many people in Okinawa, their departure can't come quickly enough. Let's have a listen to our Tokyo Bureau Chief, Fiona Wilson. Okinawa, subtropical island prefecture in Japan. It's the poorest prefecture in Japan, and it's always had a sort of disproportionate burden when it comes to the US military. It's less than 1% of the Japanese territory, but it hosts nearly three quarters of the American bases. There are 19,000 Marines there, and a fifth of Okinawa is covered with American bases. So you can understand why there's a feeling of resentment there, which has been growing actually in recent years. Alessio, uh, Okinawans fed up with the U.S. military presence. Is it just because it's overburdening, this, the, the, uh, the percentage of the population, as, as we uh, just heard there? Yes and no, in the sense that, um, of course, these, the, the, the numbers that Fiona was mentioning are all true. I mean, it's the largest presence, U.S. presence in the whole of Japan. It's disproportionate compared to other parts of the territory. That is also true. Um, but at the same time, it's a little bit like the boogeyman that you want and without which you cannot really have an argument anymore about your mm -hmm. condition. You actually have to start doing something for yourself. Okinawa is also the last, largest recipient of government money in terms of development. Um, it also has um, an economy that draws enormous on the amount of uh, sort of, uh, if you want, uh, what is generated by the US presence um, on the ground, because locals actually do provide um, a considerable amount of services, support, there's jobs. So uh, there is an element there that if you remove, for example, tomorrow morning, the majority of the troops out, you take the sort of like uh, the military presence outside of Okinawa, there's not much left to do in Okinawa other than going there for a vacation, a holiday, and a few temples here and there. Um, so, so there is a balance to be now, that's one thing. I think the real problem is that 
there is this um, feeling, generally speaking, in, in Okinawa, as you are sort of like a different part of the country that is not as important as the rest of the country. So there is a basic resentment, right. especially towards the central government and the treatment that the Okinawans feel um, is uh, sort of given to them uh, by the rest of the Japanese uh, population, but in particular by the Japanese government. Right. So I think that resentment, it sort of speaks about two things. One is the genuine challenge of having foreign troops um, on your own land and we see this with the occasional incidents and sort of the situation where uh, you've got I don't know car accidents and, and locals that die or the assault on local uh, young uh, um, uh, 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 female citizens um, so you got that element that is about a difficult and, and the challenge of coexistence but the other one really is about the, uh, the the general feeling that in Okinawa you have vis-a-vis the central government and the attitudes that the central government has towards the prefecture. Mm. Uh, Linda, Alessio pointed out uh, the, the, some of the resentment that is there already in Japan. Uh, the tr- these troops are being shifted to Guam, but Tokyo is playing a huge chunk of that bill to, to relocate troops, I understand. So will people in Japan be further upset about that part of it, or is it, uh, well, they're leaving and that's okay? Mm, might be more the latter, mm. um, although $3 billion is <laughs> yeah. a lot of money, I think. Um, but I think that underscores how much they want to move the U.S. base off of Okinawa. Now, as Alessio said, it's been, you know, there have been problems. There have been uh, crimes committed. Now, of course, you know, these things happen. Mm. Uh, of course, this is not um, in any way to denigrate the U.S. military. But I think the bigger issue is having another country's military be located, um, taking up, you know, a substantial part of of, um, of Okinawa, part of Japan. So Guam is U.S. territory. Um, and actually having it located there, at least, um, I think, maybe fits more with their affiliation with the United States. Um, but of course... Um, you have to look at um, how much this is likely to dominate mm. Guam as well. Right. So um, there are no easy answers. The bigger picture, of course, is that um, the United States' presence in Asia is always the major kind of military um, presence yeah. in the region. And they're going to have to, they will have their base somewhere, especially as we've been talking about the tensions um, with China, because obviously originally the U.S. engagement was the robot communism. Mm. And that um, is why the U.S. has such a big defense role um, in countries like Japan, South Korea, um, Taiwan. And so I think this is just another, the latest um, iteration of it. It's no longer... Um, is, it, is that the right term, sort of the battle against the, you know, communism? It's now sort of much more, we can cr- create our own term. <laughs> so it's it's new frontiers, yeah. but it's the same principle. That's really interesting. Alessio, uh, just briefly, such a long U.S. military history in Asia Pacific, uh, but why, why this shift now? Does it really matter? No, I think that is, um, you see, the fundamental difference is that troops or the American presence in, in Japan is different from presence in any other part of Asia because it's strategic. Mm-hmm. It is about the most projectable, uh, projectable component of the U.S. military. It has a forward deployed, the carrier, which is the only forward deployed carrier anywhere in the world. It has a, a 3MF, the marine expeditionary component, which is based mostly in Okinawa. This is this is the bits of the U.S. military deployed in Asia that matters not just to Japanese security, but the American presence and prominence in that part of the world, period, but none. Korea being the second one, but it's tailor-made and specifically designed to address the North Korean and Korean sort of uh, peninsula stability, mm. um, if you want. Um, so 5,000 troops do not detract to that fact, right? So the most important thing is the logistical sort of nature of these bases and the fact that the core of the... Um, 
the, the, the type of the military capabilities deployed in Japan remain as such. These 5,000 men are more to alleviate the situation with the locals and try to rebuild the trust that in particular of late last year and a half affected incredibly the Marine Corps uh, presence in particular and, and the Okinawans mm. uh, because of accidents uh, uh, in terms of um, exercises as well as uh, uh, personal behavior. Always been a very difficult situation, but those 5,000 Marines are predominantly about addressing that particular issue. Mm. You are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bage, Linda Yu, and Alessio Patilano. Coming up, Boris Johnson says he wants to replace Theresa May. Stay tuned. What's the secret to a happy life? Join us in June in Madrid for Monocle's fifth annual Quality of Life Conference to find out. We'll be asking the important questions and proffering a few unexpected answers on everything from the future of our cities to deft design, from hospitality to the finer things in life. You'll find counsel from the food players laying the table for success, the entrepreneurs we're backing, and plenty of lessons, scoops and insights gleaned in the Spanish capital and beyond. The Monocle Quality of Life Conference takes place in Madrid from the 27th to the 29th of June. And there's more good news if you're a Monocle subscriber. You get a 10% discount. Head to conference.monocle.com now and watch the film from last year's event and buy your ticket for this year's edition. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. Welcome back to Midori House. Still with me, Linda Yu and Alessio Patilano. The former British Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, has been a thorn in Theresa May's side, to say the least. This since he quit his post last summer. And today, the leading Brexiteer has announced he wants to replace Mrs. May when she eventually stands down as Prime Minister and leader of the Conservative Party. This not really news, is it? Johnson's ambition, uh, Linda, is is quite well known. Well, yes, he nearly, remember, he nearly stood um, last time when uh, Theresa May became prime minister. In fact, I recall the presser, the press conference, when he was expected to announce he was going to stand. And then he actually ended up saying, no, it can't be me. (laughs) And so uh, we've, uh, uh, yes, I think this has been um, anticipated. Um, I think the news today is, of course, the 1922 committee of backbenchers in the Tory party want uh, the prime minister to set out a timetable for departure. And so I think this is sort of maybe hastened. Um, people like Boris throwing his hat in the ring, but he won't be uh, the only one. Um, yeah. There are certainly reports of uh, funding that's already come in uh, for others like Sajid Javid, um, who are you know also looking like they're going to stand. I imagine it's probably going to be quite a crowded field. Mm. So those hardliners in, in the Conservative Party, of course, want uh, this timeline. But on the other side, uh, Theresa May and her government want to again introduce this Brexit bill, um, even though it's failed twice. I wonder if uh, if that affects or amplifies Boris Johnson's comments in some way. Well, I think the, the two are going in parallel. I think linking this point about where the um, leadership uh, bid is coming from is very important mm-hmm. in the sense that he is the poster boy of Brexit in many respects. Yeah. And, and short of Nigel Farage, really, he's the guy that is sort of, you can think about Brexit and then you may put a politician <laughs> next to it. You know, that's, that's, that's what it's one or the other. Um, so it's a natural thing. I think it's expected. It's been in the air. 
he couldn't continue to do the same thing that he's done for months now, you know, even last month the news night where he was point blank asked the question, you know, are you going to go for leadership? He said, no, absolutely not. Uh, so so, so he couldn't hide that anymore. Um, having said so, I think what is going to be extremely interesting is that I don't think he had any place to go other than present himself in this context, provided what happened within the, with the bank benches and the conservative side of the conservative party, as it were. However, the, the the tide of political affairs at the moment might turn against them, especially if there's some sort of traction um, on the Brexit bill. Because any, if anywhere this thing is going to go and it's going to be taken seriously and they manage to get some sort of a cross-party um, agreement, it's going to be a very soft or softer version of Brexit, right. um, which will put his persona and everything he stands for somewhat at odds with any other potential candidates for leadership and in fact empowering others who do not come with the same type of baggage to present themselves as the fresh face that should take the Conservative Party forward. So I think right now it had to come out. It couldn't wait any longer given everything else. He needed to sort of fulfill this role that has been sort of bestowed upon himself and he himself bestowed upon you know his own sort of character but whether that is going to be counterproductive. I think it very much depends on, on, on the deal, which is why Theresa May is keeping her head down and trying really to get across the line. Yeah. Remember always, she comes from the non-hard Brexiteer component of the party. She never was fully committed into it in that regard. Um, therefore, it is not impossible to think that she might very well prefer to get something done that will favour some of those who are coming from within her cabinet sure. that might actually replace her. That, well, that's quite interesting. Um, uh, Linda, this kind of fits the narrative of outlandish populist conservative leaders taking uh, power from the right. Uh, does he have a real shot at this? I think Boris probably has quite a lot of grassroots support. He mm. remains mm. probably one of the few politicians that you could use his first name and he'd be identifiable. But with Brexit, um, everything, I think, becomes a lot more polarized. Right. So that may work against um, him, as Alessio has um, has suggested. Um, but I think if you look across um, the, the potential candidates, the biggest choice for um, the Conservative Party is whether they want somebody who's for leave or for remain. And most of the Conservative Party voted to leave. Yeah. And so if you think about their process, so you need parliamentary support to become one of the two final candidates. And I think the MPs are more evenly split, mm. um, not necessarily in terms of the down the line vote, but in terms of harder or softer Brexit, I think there's more of a balance there. But the ultimate choice um, goes to the grassroots. So the Tory party members will decide which of the two candidates that they'll choose. And if one of them, whether it's Boris or somebody else, is... Um, you know, much uh, more for Brexit yeah. and accept, um, you know, that it needs to be done quickly. Um, you know, I, I think that's going to be a very interesting dynamic um, around who becomes our new leader. And then here's the other question. An, a prime minister not um, chosen by a general election, which yeah. is now permitted under the fixed parliament system, but given how divided the country is on Brexit, so now you have more of a pro-Brexit prime minister who's just going to take us out, maybe with no deal or whatever um, the harder version might be. Um, how is this going to sit in a country that's so divided and they've had no say in um, 
and choosing this prime mm, minister, yeah. taking this decision, because the general election isn't due until 2022. Yeah. Mm. For an already very unpopular conservative po- conservative party at this point. Um, let's leave that there. I want to make sure we have time on today's program to talk about a ruling in Belgium. A court has said the country's former king, Albert II, will be fined 5,000 euros a day if he refuses to take a DNA test. He's been asked to take the paternity test to determine whether he fathered a child back in the 1960s. Uh, The artist, 50-year-old Delphine Boel, first alleged the ex-king was her father back in 2005. Alessio, what do you make of this? Is he afraid of Interpol coming after him with the spirometric data? What's his concern? Well, it could be a number of things, really, at the moment. Um, It could be a matter of principle, hard to to think about it, provided that it's a 5,000 euros fine per day. It might very well be that is related to something that he doesn't want to disclose. You see, part of it is is also about the unexpected, the the, the X factor that you can't really fully account for we don't know about uh, whether is there is something related to his health conditions could be any number of reasons yeah. if you want um, and so on the one hand um, you have like in any country with 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 royal uh, sort of family and and and, and the monarchy that that has a certain role to perform you want to be careful about uh, how certain information and news comes out um, and obviously because this is a court requirement uh, the DNA result will be part of court proceedings therefore um, they would be accessible to others. Yeah. And therefore, if there's something wrong with it, obviously, it would be very difficult to hide. So, on the one hand, it is suspicious that it doesn't want to sort of do it, given what's at stake. On the other, precisely because of that, it might very well be that there are other reasons that are not necessarily connected to the uh, uh, question at hand yeah. that might create even bigger problems for the country. Uh, in Belgium, it seems not so many people actually really are I- invested in the monarchy. So <laughs> who is he protecting here? And, and, and what do you make of this, Linda? I think he's protecting his privacy. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, but on the other hand, you sort of feel for this um, woman who apparently has established that her father isn't her father, and clearly there's, you know, there's somebody else's um, life to think about. So yeah. I think it's just the personally, um, it's one of those. It's you know, any family matters, whether it's divorce or child custody, these things. I think when they get into the courts and it becomes a matter of public discourse, I think it's just really hard for them. Yeah. But of course, he was the former monarch. Right. I think the royals in any country are used to a level um, of this. And I suppose the question is, how rich is the Belgian former monarch? Yeah. He pays this fine every day. We're about to find out. <laughs> <That was exactly. laughs> yes. Uh, well, we will leave that there. That does bring us to the end of today's show. Linda Yu and Alessio Patalano, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show produced by Bill Ludi, researched by Neelam Najjar. Our studio manager, Kenya Scarlett. Thank you as well to Reese James for his help in setting up this program. More music is next. At 1900, it is The Urbanist with our editor, Andrew Tuck. And don't forget, we'll have more on the day's other top stories on the Monocle Daily with Andrew Muller. That is 2200 London time, 1700 in Toronto. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow. I'm Daniel Bage. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.